A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach, and within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I'm joined by another physical therapist and wonderful human being, Sarah Duval. She is a mother, she is an adventure sports athlete, and she is the founder of Core Exercise Solutions, which is a center for continuing education and online programs. She, like me, uh, went a different route after graduate school in physical therapy. I think we both decided that the modern medical model didn't really suit our kind of intellectual curiosity and our desire to really treat individuals as individuals and see that there is not a cookie cutter approach when it comes to successful physical therapy. She has worked primarily in the pelvic health field and really found that niche and loves it. And so we talk about some common misconceptions about the pelvic floor, about diastasis, and so much more. I hope you'll really enjoy this amazing conversation with Sarah. Welcome, Sarah. I am always so thrilled to have other physical therapists and like-minded individuals and just learning about, you know, how how you got to where you are. I've admired your work on Instagram. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited for this chat. Yeah. And we were just talking about fellow Southerners living mm-hmm. in the Northeast. So we already have a lot in common there. So let's backtrack and find out how you became a PT. Like, what inspired you, and uh, what did wh- like what were your first steps into getting there? Well, it's it's actually kind of a slightly long, but I think maybe interesting story. I started volunteering in the hospital as a candy striper when I was eleven, and worked on the cancer floor, delivering water and lunches and things like that. And I really enjoyed the interaction with patients, but. I think at that age, dealing with cancer patients that would be gone, you know, you get really attached for a couple of weeks and they wouldn't be there was really hard. And so I ended up doing a round on the physical therapy floor right around the age of 14. I just kept volunteering in the hospital because I really liked it. And I fell in love with PT at the age of 14. Just I was with a really dynamic physical therapist who loved her job, 
was helping so much of the diversity of patients. And it just, you know, it was hard not to fall in love with it. Oh, yes, I bet. So you knew right from there that you were going to go to school for PT. I did. I was trying to decide between being an engineer and going to PT school my senior year in college and decided I liked people. Um, That was a better choice for me. But I do like having more of an engineering type of brain. And so I find it makes me look at the human body maybe a little differently, maybe a little controversial, depending on which camp you sit in. Um, But I do like the biomechanics side a lot. Uh, And so, um, you know, it's just a, it's a nice way to look at things. I, I agree. I don't. I wouldn't say I have an engineering brain, but I definitely have like that physics, um, biomechanical approach because I think the body is engineered in such a way we have to examine it, like from that engineering perspective, and it allows us to go into the micro and then expand out and recognize, like you know, not everything is applicable for everyone. But I think that approach, that analytical, logical approach, really has also helped me and also fueled me. I mean, I, you know, here I am 27 years later, and it's still so fascinating. It and, is you know, fascinating. And just, I mean, the more I learn, the more I know I don't know everything. Totally. And yes. I just feel so like, oh my gosh, I don't know why. And we may never know why for some things, but it's so fun to really dig in and think about it. And then I do like the push of layering on the biosocial model on top of the biomechanical model. I think that's important. And I think sometimes that can be forgotten and you get maybe a little, you know, those people that get too rigid in the biomechanical model and you're like, hey, wait, the person needs to meet you where they're at. Not totally. Everybody's different. You could, you mm-hmm. could have a presentation the same. And I've seen this a lot in chronic pain where, you know, they're going and they're getting diagnosis after diagnosis and this and that. And it really comes down to your nervous system is fried. And this is your body's only way of kind of communicating that you've got to stop and deal with some whatever it is. Um, but it's, those are not, that is not um, kind of readily <laughs> assessed or even investigated in, in this modern medical model. So, well, not let, when you're yeah. dealing with insurance. No. Oh, my gosh. Two yes. patients every 30 minutes. I mean, some of the extremes in these clinics, I can't, I cannot imagine working in that type of capacity. No. So we both are, uh, you know, kind of rogue in a sense. I, I think mm-hmm. it's more common now for sure for PTs to have other options and opportunities to work outside of a, of a clinic setting or, or a, kind of an office setting or a hospital. But what did you start off on a path where it was more like you were in a clinic or hospital? And then what, what made you decide to work for yourself now? Well, I decided fairly early on because I did not like khaki pants. Uh, (laughs) It was more the whole thing they represented for me. It was more of the traditional clinic setting. um, And I just, it wasn't me. So I started out-of-pocket pay uh, very, very early on. And I was one of the first people in the state of South Carolina to do out-of-pocket pay. Um, And I liked it. I liked the accountability it gave me Mm -hmm. because as soon as you switch to that model, you've got to fix people mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> because exactly. their your reputation is word of mouth and you know, you want repeat business. I mean, you don't want repeat business in the sense that you don't want people to come back. Something gets hurt, but, but in that sense, you want to be that person for them that they feel comfortable going to. And so I, I think I really like, I wish that our medical system could come up with something for more of that type of model because of the one-on-one time, the accountability it leaves a therapist with, um, the accountability it leaves a patient with, but make it more affordable and feasible for everybody. I don't know how to make that happen, but I do like the model as a whole. I agree. I totally agree. So how did you, how did you advertise? How did you set it up logistically? Um, and yeah. And then what happened? Because I know there's PTs who listen to this podcast for sure. And that are always writing me. I'm sure you get this as well. It's like, I really want to leave. There's a lot of fear. People are very, very attached to, um, these, this kind of security. And I, and I always say that that security is a model that has fed, that you've been fed and you can get security in a different way. And it's all like, what, what, there's a lot more than security. That, that um than just like a paycheck or a pension or whatever. It's also you can never lose a job. Yeah. Like yeah. my husband can lose his job. Everything. Yeah. Right off the bat. Day one, pack your box, get out of the office. I can never lose my job. Mm-hmm. I can lose a client, but I can never lose my job. 
Mm. You know, so I feel like even though there's insecurity in that realm, I feel like there's security. Right. There's always going to be somebody that needs, I mean, right. There's billions of people and mm -hmm. there's many of them, a great percentage that need uh, physical therapy, need physical therapy as a prehab form, as a rehab form, as a rewiring, all of it. So you just went out and started advertising your services or was it all word of mouth? Well, so I've started three out-of-pocket pay practices in three different states. And the beautiful thing is you get better at it mm. <laughs> the more you do things. So don't be afraid to have to redo something uh, because you'll you'll do it better the next time. So I, by the third time I, had, I was setting up an out-of-pocket pay practice, it was very fast. And the way I did that, <laughs> that's probably what more people want to know, is I went around to all the Pilates studios, gyms, um, yoga studios, I met with the person in charge, the head instructor, and I said, could I come give like a one hour in service to your instructors? And then I always in new towns, I always end up renting space from one of these places and working out of there. And then I've owned my own space before in the past as well, too. So it kind of just depends on where it wants to go. But in the beginning, that's a really easy way to do it. So you don't have this giant loaded overhead and you automatically have a referral base. So I would just go and teach little end services and then they would send me people because they're like, Hey, I like you. And then I would send those people back. And then, so they would send me more people because they're like, Hey, Sarah helps keep that person loyal to me. But when they're a personal trainer or Pilates instructor, there's stuff that's in more suited to my scope of practice where, I mean, frankly, they don't want to deal with it, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, they could send me that person and I could send it back with a nice little note or an email or a phone call. And I feel like word of mouth happens so fast in towns, no matter what the size, because I've built in little tiny towns and I've built in big cities. And I still feel like word of mouth is the fastest, most efficient once you get off the ground. And I found that the way to get off the ground was to meet with the people who are meeting the people, you know, the people who are already, who are already paying out of pocket for their Pilates lessons. They're already paying out of pocket to go to personal trainers. And so, you know, you already have the type of person that's investing in their health. Mm -hmm, exactly. And I, I, this is another point. I wish more people... Don't go to doctor's offices. Yeah. That will be my other advice. I, I mean, it's, I've been to doctor's offices. I did that with my first and second round. And I just feel like in, unless a physician knows you well or has multiple patients that have come in and said, refer to this PT, I feel like they feel more comfortable referring to people who take insurance. I agree. I agree. And they usually have their kind of couple of mm -hmm. um, groups that they kind of stick with no matter what. Um, so how, so you started all this and how did you become more specialized, shall I say? <laughs> I mean, I feel like you, when anybody says specialty, I feel like, well, if you're, if you're talking about the human body, there's so many elements to it and function and um, performance, injury, prevention, recovery. Um, but it sounds like you have found kind of a niche. Is that true? And how did you find that? That is so true. I feel like I've spent the last decade just completely focused on women's health because somebody asked me a TMJ question the other day and I was like, I have no idea. I haven't thought about the TMJ in 10 years. So I do feel like in some ways as PTs, we have to specialize. We won't have to, but I don't have enough energy to not specialize and really go deep in a topic. So there's going to be a lot of stuff I don't know, but then there's going to be a lot of stuff I know well. And having babies definitely pushed me more into women's health because I was very, I'm a very high level athlete and there was not um, advice or help for me at the level that I was at. And mm. so that's what pushed me into it is because I wanted to be able to help others uh, pass the basics of women's health rehab. And I mean, this is women's health rehab, pelvic health, and that's all the surrounding um, kind of sequelae from that is much more kind of mainstream now, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I know no, it that really is. Ten years ago, it wasn't at all. No, ten years ago it was. And I imagine in PT school, did you learn much about pelvic health? I think we had one class on pelvic floor and one on diastasis. Yeah. It's kind of crazy because I think of like, you know, um, I'm actually doing, recording a podcast, so I won't say too much about it now, but I feel like, you know, people are walking around in these homes, which are our body, and the pelvis is kind of like 
the the basement. Nobody really wants to venture in. They're like, I don't know what's down there. <laughs> like, let's just like, you know, and I feel like that it's so funny. It's so like, it's, you know, we know that sex ed is like, is Twittery. Like people can barely talk about sex ed and it's like, now it has been implemented in most schools, but you should see what my daughter knows. <laughs> right. I mean, but it, but it's and like, my son. right. They should, right. I'm sure. And you, and they're probably going to teach people. Right. And it's like, and it shouldn't be like this shameful thing. There's so, I mean, so many layers to it. We could get, but I think in general, anything, anything inside the pelvis that has to do with, uh, reproduction or organs or elimination or that it's just like not talked about and yet there what would you say as uh now that you're seeing so many of these like percentage wise how many people are probably walking around with something going on in the pelvis well i mean i mean looking at the research i mean conservative research is 30 percent non-conservative research is 75 percent i mean crazy. so it's it depends on what study you look at but I mean, there is definitely just significant pelvic floor issues. So what are some of the um, kind of common misconceptions you would say when people hear pelvic health or come to you and they have like some idea and it's really, or they've been told like things that you hear, like what are some really common misconceptions? Yeah. So I think the most common one is that Kegels, two things, Kegels are the only thing you can do, but also Kegels aren't helpful. So I hear it now because it's becoming so mainstream. It's like black and white. Like, exactly. Don't ever do Kegels. And I'm like, well, no, that's, let's, let's pull that back a little bit. Because, I mean, just take, for example, like if I'm working, do you want me to give examples? Is that of course. You? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so take, for example, if I'm working with like, say, a CrossFit athlete and somebody who has really worked hard for hypertrophy in their lats, in their quads, in their glutes, in all these other muscles, and they have worked and worked and have extreme hypertrophy, and they've never thought about their pelvic floor. Their pelvic floor might have naturally gotten stronger along with these muscles, but it might not have, depending on how they, their recruitment. And so I like to think about the lats as like the saran wrap for the upper body. And so let's say you're going to do a deadlift off the floor. I realize I'm talking to yoga people here, but if you'll just hang in there with me. <laughs> I know what a deadlift about, is, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but you're yeah. right. But yeah. let's think about something in yoga where you're um, doing maybe a sun salutation and you go from a push-up down to the floor, like where you're loading your body heavily. So if you load, if you engage the lats, you're going to be creating a lot of pressure down on the pelvic floor. And I find in yoga too, I seem to have the most issue with transitions with people mm -hmm. where they have a lot of trouble managing pressure through transitions. So if I'm trying to get somebody to manage pressure, whether that's in like a, a heavy CrossFit setting or more in a like flowy yoga setting, I'm going to be looking at two things. One, I, I really got off track here, but I'll just keep going. One, how they manage their pressure. So what is happening? How are they generating it? How are they spreading it? And which way to look at upper ab gripping, breathing, lower ab strength, things like that. But then also we're going to be looking at pelvic floor strength, which so you may have somebody who's got pelvic floor tightness, but you also might have somebody who has pelvic floor weakness. And we are we need to gather up our weakest parts of our body. And so if somebody has worked really hard to hypertrophy a lot of other areas in their body, I might give that CrossFit athlete weighted Kegels, mm -hmm. you know, which, which is It's mind blowing when you also have me on the other hand saying, no, 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 the pelvic floor is, is, it's functional. And we need to look at our, the whole kinetic chain and it interplays with all the other muscles. And I'm going to be doing a lot of hip work to help somebody's pelvic floor. But I feel like when we go so black and white, this is helpful. This is not helpful. It completely misses the mark for someone. I agree. And this, I think it's gotten worse when people are looking at five to 10 second video clips on Instagram. Oh, yeah. It has these big, like, don't do this. Don't do you Kegels. Know, They're don't do Kegels. Don't, or you know, don't fly. let your, like, <laughs> let your belly be relaxed when you're breathing. I'm like, I don't know about that. If or I'm doing like, belly, heavy, hold your belly tight all the time. Right. You know, it's, it's, just, it, it's these extremes where yeah. you're just like, I mean, I can think of a scenario where that's not a good idea, but yeah. I can also think of a scenario where that is a good idea. Right. It's all about like, yes, what is the demand and how do you meet it? Well, and speaking of Instagram, my favorite yeah. is the comments where somebody will leave and they're like, well, what about you didn't mention the blah, blah, blah under this post? And I'm like, it's literally a one minute post person. <laughs> I couldn't cover everything in a one minute post. I, I know. I love how passionate people get. Uh, they're very passionate, <laughs> passionate, very passionate and, and very confused. <laughs> oh, no. And, well, not I think on the point they want to get across. <laughs> I think people are confused because 
people like bullet points. They like, yes. a, you know what I mean? They and and the, they love the body is not, a, not yeah, the body is not a bullet point. It is not. No. Everybody is going to have different needs based on, again, like their history, their uh, their posture, their ability to recruit muscles, d- the demand placed, et cetera. Okay, so the pel- so explain a little bit for people who are maybe just now hearing these terminology. What is the difference between like when you say managed pressure? What is managing pressure versus activating muscles? So pressure is the force that's generated in your abdominal cavity to stabilize your spine, to basically kind of hold your trunk still while you do something. So let's say you pick up the heavy groceries off the floor, are you just going to bend over like a rag doll? And if you're not, you're going to generate pressure to do that. Let's say you're going to do a push-up where you're on your hands and your toes, like a plank position. Mm -hmm. If your belly just completely sag and you hang on all your joints, or do you keep stiffness in your core? So basically pressure is that stiffness and the heavier weight you're lifting or the more load with your body because our bodies are heavy. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say lifting weights is because we lift our bodies a lot. And so I think we can generate tremendous amounts of force just in like a full plank position on the pelvic floor. And so now the, the amount of pressure or uh, tension or stiffness that you're creating can be spread in different places in the core, can be handled in different places, or it can be all kind of shoved into one spot. So with mm. somebody who tends to have a diastasis recti, they tend to shove it out the front. Somebody who tends to have pelvic floor issues like leaking or prolapse or tension, they tend to shove it down. Somebody who has maybe a hiatal hernia tends to shove it up. So basically where you tend to shove your pressure versus spreading your pressure or controlling your pressure um, tends to be that kind of leaking point for pressure. And would you say that that management of a more kind of uniform pressure is based on alignment, activation of muscles, and breathing as a whole? Of course. Yes. And I kind of fed that to you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you did. I'm just like, yes, yes, more of that. So I feel like it's activation of muscles in two senses. One, too much, Mm. and two, too little. Mm -hmm. And so clearing up that, because I tend to see a lot of, especially with public floor issues, I tend to see a lot of upper ab gripping Mm -hmm. and a lot of lower ab weakness. So then you're looking at upregulating and downregulating are the words that I use a lot with with patients is that we're going to upregulate this and we're going to downregulate this because it doesn't mean anything's bad. It just means we might need to downregulate a little bit to let something else come in and pull some of the load. And I have found personally in, in the years, and because I primarily work with women, many women who have had babies, but this is not just for those, um, whose pelvis tilting kind of uh, habitually has led to, like you're saying, that kind of an- the pushing out into the anterior wall, into whether they have you know leftover diastasis or not, and that is a the, when your pelvis tilts, people, you're, there's an it, there's an imbalance already because it's like taking the contents and you're putting them in a different assortment, and so the pressure they can do all this work, but if they don't structurally change their alignment and their awareness of their alignment. Um, especially when load is added, like you're talking about with plank or lifting weights and they're tilting the pelvis. How much of that have you found to be um, a big contributor to that imbalance of pressure? Well, absolutely. I really think too, when we look specifically at yoga, I feel like the inhibition of the hamstrings can be a big problem. So having strong, long hamstrings is awesome, but having inhibited hamstrings is not awesome. So Can I find, you explain what that means sure, for people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a lot of the yoga instructors that I see, because I tend to see more instructors now than I think I do um, lay people that are not instructors, which is awesome. Um, but we tend to layer on stuff, so it makes really fun cases. But I tend to find an overstretching or over-lengthening of the hamstrings and not enough eccentric activation for length. And so when we look at the pelvis tilt, so you can imagine your hamstrings are like little anchors on the back of your pelvis and your hamstrings help pull your pelvis out of that anterior tilt. But when we stretch our hamstrings too much to the point of they kind of want to shut down a little bit and be like, I can't fire, you're stretching me too hard. 
or too, too much of a degree, then the pelvis tends to spill forward. So oftentimes I'll have those uh, people who are doing yoga, I'll have them just back off a little bit from the extremes of their hamstring stretching and think about keeping a little tension in their hamstrings, maybe bend their knee just a pinch more so they engage with their hamstring. Um, so they're not just kind of lengthening, over lengthening to the hamstrings. And then that will help change their pelvis alignment. Uh, I, that's exactly, that's how we teach, um, lit is because so many people, well, it's, it's really just kind of coming into these traditional practices where you're like flowing and just spilling the pelvis. And, you know, I, I can't remember the, um, the study that PT, who is also a yoga teacher, but it was, it was something like 90% of reported proximal hamstring tendinopathies are yogis. And yeah, so what it's showing that. you, yeah, it's like tugging, tugging, tugging. And then we call it, it's called the yoga butt. I mean, it has a term because it's like so painful because people get to the point where they've overstretched and then all of a sudden there's like a real um, issue in tendinopathy and it's, and it, and it hurts and it hurts mm -hmm. all the time. They don't even have to be stretching. It hurts. I love rehabbing hamstring injuries. Mm -hmm. It is so much fun. It is. It is. And it's, it's all that. And the hamstrings are going right up into the bottom of the pelvis. So it's all the mm -hmm. pelvic contents. It's the glutes up because often same people that are, you know, their hamstrings are long and weak are also their glutes well, then are. Their piriformis is gripping their glutes. Yes. Are They're like, why is my butt so flat? I work out so much. Yes. So can, <laughs> on that note, can you talk about, um, because then people are stretching their piriformis all the time. And what I say, the same uh, thing is like, like the piriformis is just trying its hardest to do something yes. it's not really supposed to be doing, which is to stabilize the pelvis. It is not nearly, it's tiny compared to the, the glute max. And the glute max is a, is a mover, but it also is a stabilizer along with the other gluteal muscles. So can you speak a little bit about why people have uh, kind of tight, perceived tight uh, piriformises and, and what they can do about it besides stretching? Today's podcast is sponsored by AminoCo, my favorite company for amino-based supplementation. While I use many of their products, today I'm highlighting the Purity line. Purity is just like it sounds like. It's designed to accelerate the export of fat triglycerides out of the liver, which helps reduce overall liver fat levels and helps maintain normal levels of liver enzymes. The liver is vital to all metabolic processes in the body and is primarily responsible for removing toxins, processing nutrients from food, breaking down fats, and building proteins. I use Purity as a bonus to help my liver function more optimally. Even though I'm living a pretty clean life, I feel better knowing that Purity is helping me filter out the inevitable toxins that we all encounter. This drink helps me feel refreshed and motivated to keep my organs functioning their best. I mix it with a powder in water or in my favorite smoothie. You can find out more about AminoCo in episode 569 when I interview the, one of the founders, Dr. Robert Wolf. You can also shop my favorite 100% science-based amino acid supplements and save 30%. Just enter code LIT at AminoCo.com slash LIT. Again, AminoCo, A-M-I-N-O-C-O dot com slash LIT. Yeah. So when you think about that anterior tilt position, you're shoving the pelvis forward. When the pelvis gets shoved forward, people often end up with their feet turning out too. So they get that shoved pelvis forward, feet turned out, externally rotated state at the pelvis and the hips. Now, if we take a muscle and we hold it in a more shortened position, it's not going to be very strong, not going to be very powerful because we have something called link tension relationship with muscles, where if a muscle is not at a good length, like we talked about the hamstrings being too long, then the glutes in this scenario end up too short. And so they're unable to contract well. So when you bend over to unload your dishwasher, you're not going to use your glutes because they're in the shortened state because the pelvis is so shoved forward. So you're just going to use your low back. And so when we have this state, then the piriformis obturator, the other deep hip rotators are like, okay, I guess we have to do the work now because the glutes aren't working, hamstrings aren't working. And then what is left are those deep hip rotators. So then those tighten down. And then somebody says, well, I have glute weakness. So then they do all these glute exercises, which then just further layers on the deep hip rotators when what they need to do is establish length to their glute max. And the way to do that is to find full internal rotate, full active internal rotation. Again, not passive, not stretching, 
active because it, in my book, it doesn't count unless it's active. Mm-hmm. Here you can stretch into lots of positions, but you don't own it. So right. you've got to have full active internal rotation, but you can't actively internally rotate the hip well when you're in that spilled forward pelvis position because you're just going to pinch the crap out of your labrum. And so you've got to reorient the pelvis before you internally rotate to then be able to access glute max. So then it so comes finding, back down. Finding that neutral pelvis and then moving yeah, from there. Because you can't, if not, you're just end up with impingement. And then people are like, well, why do I have my labral tear? And why does the front of my hip pinch? And it's like, well, that's because your pelvis is spilled forward and you're trying to internally rotate and you lack internal rotation. So then you spill forward more to sneak it in, to cheat it. And then you stretch more when that poor muscle gets cold on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's painful, I know. Right? The poor pelvis. There's so many muscles that attach to it um, and just you know, like what we're saying is try and find balance around them. It's, it's so that not one in area is being compressed, overly lengthened, snoozing, being in a, you know, when she talks about inhibition, it's like, I call it the snoozy. They're just not turning on when they need to. And that's like, that's habit. You know, it's like the brain is trying to manage a lot of different things. And the, the way you move over and over again becomes the habit and that becomes the go-to. So it's like, really paying attention, slowing things down, looking at form, and then then adding demand once you've got the mechanics. This is going back to the engineering. Once you have the mechanics, then you can add more demand. You can add more movement variability within, you know, within this. So it's, but start simple and then start with the compound movement. Um, let's talk about diastasis because this is always like the, oh my God, you know, women come in, I have a diastasis, what can I... I mean, I just got a question the other day. Um, can I do plank? I have a diastasis. I'm like, listen, everybody gets one. All right, <laughs> this is not like you're not you're not alone, and don't let it freak you out. But what are the things that uh, people should know? What are some again misconceptions, and what are maybe some things that can ease people's mind? Well, I think society standards are very difficult. Mm-hmm. If I'm rehabbing, so think about diastasis as a fascial stretching issue. Think about prolapse as a fascial stretching issue, unless you're in the biotensegrity model 100% and then it's tightness. But I, I believe there's more than one component to that, at least from what I've seen. Um, and so you've got these fascial integrity issues, basically. And so if I'm rehabbing somebody's prolapse and I could get them from a grade three to a grade one, we're going to be happy. We're going to have a party. Everything's going to be great. Surgery is going to be canceled. Life is going to be golden. If you get somebody to a grade one diastasis, not that we grade it that way, but just in theory, it's still there a little bit. Society still says you're unacceptable in a bikini. Do you see what I'm saying? So I feel like. Because you can see it. Yeah, because you can see it. So I feel like anything less than perfect in our society is unacceptable. And I feel like that is horrible for women who had big babies and their abs got stretched out a lot. And maybe they don't have good genetics for fascial integrity and fascial remodeling. Um, So I I do think that that's a consideration that we should be talking about more. I do think diastasis can be improved. I think there's a lot we can do and whether or not we can get somebody's stomach back to a hundred percent will depend on more things than the rehab, you know, Mm -hmm. will depend on genetics (laughs) to some degree and the amount it was stretched. I mean, think about like that plastic bag, um, it was uh, the fascial dude. Oh, what's his name? Who talked about this analogy with the plastic bag? Tom Myers? No. No. Oh, I'll think of it in a second. Okay. But anyway, he gave this example of a plastic bag. It's like you can stretch it a little and it's fine. But if you stretch a plastic bag, then the integrity of the plastic bag, you can see the thinned tissue. And granted, our body, I think, has more of resilience and more ability to remodel. Remodel, than that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, But I do think it's something to keep in mind because I have seen prolapse recovery. I've seen diastasis recovery take years and years. And, and it is, it's incredible to me how long sometimes fascial remodeling takes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you won't know anybody's potential, you know, right off the bat. I've seen, I've had patients that have had a severe diastasis, like stick their whole fist in their diastasis and have a great recovery. And the people with like a three finger width, barely over normal, not be able to get it to budge. So I just never know, you know, what they're going to be able to bring to the table. And so I don't know, I feel like that component of it should be talked about a little bit more that there is a genetic component. But I also feel like, you know, you get those extremes again, right? Because we feel like it's like going into your midwife. And if they ever mentioned C-section, they would never mention it in that 
realm because it would keep people away from natural birth. So I feel like we end up in this extreme where if you're rehabbing diastasis, you can never mention surgery because it's taking away from the natural process. So that makes sense back to that. Totally. Right. Like some people are going to need that, right? And yeah, some, some are not. Are yep. surgery. But I, I just have a lot of faith in people that they're going to sort it out for themselves as far as how hard they want to try mm-hmm. before they it take that me, route. Yeah. Makes me think of stretch marks. Like some people, yes. you know, they're going to have major stretch marks. And like we look at that and we're like, oh my gosh. And then others like pop out after having a baby, nothing. Mm-hmm. That is a lot that there's a lot of genetics behind that. And it's just, again, that goes back to all this different, um, slight differentiations between um, our, the, the, you know, elastin collagen makeup and how somebody's stretch marks might, they're, they're, that might be in their genetic makeup and there's nothing they can do. They can rub all the lotion on there and they shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't look at that. So besides the aesthetic, is there anything that you would, I know, again, we, we, we love and we hate these cookie cutter things because every person is different. Well, like just, that's the caveat, but is there anything people should be, um, kind of careful about when, if they are, have a diastasis? So the, so the research is really interesting when they don't account for severe versus moderate diastasis, there is no correlation between diastasis and back pain. When they account, when they take out basically the mild and moderate diastasis, then there is a connection with back pain. Um, so severe diastasis can have some connection with back pain. Moderate doesn't really seem to. Um, there's more of a connection between mild pelvic floor issues and lower back pain. <laughs> like mm-hmm. basically there's more of a connection of if you have low back pain, you may have pelvic floor issues. Um, so more of a connection there than there is with diastasis, which you wouldn't think that, right? You're thinking abs. So you're like, why would there be more of a connection between back pain and pelvic floor issues? So, but I do think there's a lot that can be done looking at rib cage angle, looking at how our rib cage sits, how well our intercostals function, how, what the role of our abs are, internal oblique dominance, external oblique dominance. So like that muscle and tension that's set up for the abdominal wall and how well we're pulling together or pulling apart on that area, how well we're adding tension. Uh, so I feel like there's a lot that can be done and I've helped a lot of women improve their diastasis. So I don't want it to seem like, no, it's not important or no, it's not. I've helped a lot of women with it. I just feel like it's the aesthetics conversation should be had as well. I agree. Is there anything you can explain like an exercise you pretty much would give, give anyone at any stage that can help them at least with the experience of feeling um, a deeper connection to the balance of muscles around the lower ribs into the pelvis that could help manage the diastasis. Is there anything you could explain that you do? Mm-hmm. So I tend to treat diastasis based on the location. Mm-hmm. So if it's below the belly button, I'm going to be looking at the pelvis and pelvic angle more. If it's above the belly button or at the belly button, I'm probably going to be looking more at the rib cage. So if it's above the belly button. And so I would do more. So I've had some just really interesting cases of diastasis where, you know, this comes back to that one size fits all. Like I had someone who we were able to improve her diastasis by working her middle and lower traps more because on one side of her body, she did not have good scapula mechanics. She overpowered through with her lat. And it was just a really fascinating thing for me to look at. And the response of her rib cage to her whole shoulder girdle complex. And then I had another patient once who it was a man and I got him doing calf raises because I finally figured out that it was his arch weakness that was keeping his diastasis open. Hmm. And he was kind of throwing himself forward. So if you can imagine like a throwing forward gate when he walked. And so when we worked on his arch strength, it helped him connect his abs during his gait. And then his diastasis went away. So I don't know. It's just one of those mind-blowing things where I feel like you've got to really look at the person. And the whole chain, like you're talking about. So I I want you to mention the foot in a minute, but I think it's a really important thing to realize, like it isn't just women and it isn't just women who've had babies that get diastasis. It can be men. It can be women who haven't had children. It's it's just a, a, quote, weakening or stretching of the fascial wall that that puts the, uh, put, you know, puts you at risk for uh, things coming through that wall, even though it's still thinner. It's like that plastic bag thing. But talk about the relationship of the foot all the way up to the pelvic floor. 
No, we think about that as our ultimate foundation, right? And how we're responding to the ground. And so how that response is, is going to spring load the rest of our body. So if we have toes that spread, if we have really strong, great arches, then we're going to have this nice lift off. If we don't, if we have uh, arches that constantly stay collapsed in or on the opposite, constantly rigid, we're going to have that response all the way up the kinetic chain. So I tend to see more um, rigid arches will tend to be someone who likes to grip their glute. So they can go from completely flat to completely rigid, but or they have trouble unwinding their arch with any control. And so they tend to, to sit more on the outside of their feet and they will often have more piriformis tightness, more operator tightness, because that gripping goes all the way up that outside chain. Mm. So fascinating. It's so, so fascinating. So tell us about your own experience uh, in like, you're an athlete. What kind of things do you do and what are what are your go-to exercises to help you? Obviously, not just helping the pelvis, but because the pelvis is the center. Like, so you're helping everything when you help the pelvis. But what are, what are some of your go-to exercises for yourself? So currently, I am a pretty serious rock climber. So I do a lot of pulling for my sport and for my training for my sport. So I would be one that you would walk into a a clinic and that would be the opposite because you normally think people's pecs are strong and my pecs will be really weak <laughs> from doing nothing but pulling. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting when you take a look at that. So I have to do a lot of overhead press. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I was going to do like a handstand push up, I would fall on my head. <laughs> it would be embarrassing, but where I can just crank out pull-ups with the weight around that waist, you know? So you definitely have to look at the, the sport demands and what's happening. Like I want to get my yoga people doing pull-ups. Because they're never in a room with a pull-up bar. (laughs) It's all pushing all the time. And so it's really hard to work pulling muscles. And so I, um, I love, now I do a lot of pushing exercises to combat all the, the climbing, which I feel like climbing is yoga on the wall. It is. Oh, I know. Movement. It just feels so good. It's such a great, I mean, talk about a wonderful movement form, holding your body up. It's like that perfect and talk about tensegrity. It's a perfect Mm -hmm. balance of suppleness with strength and, um, it, and just, and movement variability. Like you've got to be able to move in so many ways. Yeah. You've got to be able to control the pelvis and the thorax, but also have so much suppleness within that control. It's, it's crazy. It's, I've, I've done it and I love it and I've always wanted to come back to it. So I guess you, I guess in Boston, you're climbing on a wall. I mean, an indoor wall right now. Yes. We do a lot of Trips, climb outside a lot. Um, That's awesome. as well. I want to go back to one more point that I think is often uh, confused. So people will come in and they'll say, oh, I, I have um, pelvic floor tightness and I, I need to relax. I need to, you know, relax. And, and I, the confusion is their nervous system is upregulated but they're not actually strong. So tight and strong are not synonymous. So it doesn't mean that you never would work on pelvic floor strengthening, but you ha- how do you deal with somebody like that who you know, and a lot of these, I call them the, gri- we know, they're the grippers, like, you know, in, in te- like hi- higher intensity people t- tend to, I would say in my experience, gripping. and be, yeah. be the, you know, hypertonic people, they're gripping. Yeah. But that gripping is not necessarily making them strong. So can you talk a little bit about how you um, tease out the difference of those and, and what you do with somebody who is has hypertonicity um, in their pelvic floor? So this is one of those really big questions because what we do have to figure out is what's causing their tension mm-hmm. and where that's coming from. So I can go over a few of those things, but it, we might end up needing to start with just a few days or weeks of down-regulating we're just lots of breathing, inhaling into their pelvic floor, lots of meditation, lots of catching the tension and letting it go. And so that might be our first layer. And then yeah. we might need to look at what's happening with their hips. You know, can they, uh, what's their deep hip rotator situation looking like? What's their obturator? Because so our obturator internus inserts into the fascia, the same fascia as our levator ani muscle, which is our primary pelvic floor muscle. So if you're holding deep hip rotator tension, you are more than likely holding pelvic floor tension. And so we need to address their hip to be able to fix their pelvic floor. 
And so that's a lot of times what doesn't end up happening. They get release work done, but then they don't completely solve their hip issue. And then their tightness just keeps coming back because it's feeding off that system. The other thing that can increase pelvic floor tightness is too much pressure down because we combat the pressure. And so maybe they upper ab grip, maybe they breath hold, maybe they bear down as their strategy because bearing down is an easy way to be strong. It's so easy. It's like, I'm just going to bear down to lift the stroller into the trunk because it's a really easy way to generate a lot of pressure. And it's a, it's a bad shortcut for the body. Um, and so if you bear down, when you move stuff, then you're going to result in increasing pelvic floor tension. And so we've got to figure out what's kind of causing that tension, where it's coming from. We've got to recognize it. And then we start peeling back those layers and it often is layers. So are they upper ab gripping because they don't have intercostal strength and they have poor rib cage movements and dynamics with their breathing? You know, what does that kind of look like? Where is that stemming from? What's going on? Um, is it weak abs? And that's why they were over bracing their abs, which was then causing them to slip into a shallow breathing pattern. And, you know, so it's, it's just an interesting, I, I like to think of it as layers of an onion, you know, you're just peeling back those layers to see what's there and then what we can resolve. Mm. And when you talk about um, that bearing down, isn't it kind of true that like that vals Valsalva is a bearing down and isn't it taught like with heavy weightlifting that like that just as a way of like extra pressure support? So Valsalva and bearing down are not the same thing. There's actually okay. been a good number of research studies on yeah, this. Yeah, so tell the us the difference. Yes, you can safely do a Valsalva. Valsalva is just breath holding to increase and ramp up that pressure. You can breath hold in any state of core pressure, meaning where you're directing that pressure, you can hold and amplify in that position. So you can do very safe Valsalvas, not bearing down. But if you're bearing down, you're bearing down. So I don't like to, I do, I don't like to use those words because I work with weightlifters. Right. And so I don't like to use those words interchangeably because sometimes I do just need to teach somebody how to do a safe valsalva and then they're good to go for maxing out. Um, and so I feel like breath. So how would you, how would you that. teach that? Is that like a certain amount of empty certain amount that, that, and then just hold with some of the air in there? How do you teach that? So it depends. Like if somebody wants to breath hold to go down for their squat, they might actually breath hold on a big inhale. Mm -hmm. They might feel like they spread the pressure really well with their inhale. Right. Or they might feel like they gather their pelvic floor well and their lower abs well with the start of an exhale and then they breath hold. Mm. So it all kind of depends on the person and the best strategy for their body. So a, a bearing down is somebody maybe trying that but ends up instead bearing of down. bringing it out, they're pushing it all down. Yeah. 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 Or containing it in too, because you don't always have to brace out. Mm. Like you can brace in. So it's yep. more of just a the strategy that's used. And so I find that if you don't have any kind of training with lifting heavy or focusing on that kind of pressure, because we lift heavy, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we, we pick up the giant thing of dog food. We pick up the heavy box. I mean, we lift heavy, whether we think we lift heavy or not. Yeah. You know, I yeah. just moved around my living room furniture the other day and lifting the couch like this is heavy. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. It's always surprising. It. And then you got to use these little arm muscles to help out as well once you get the. Okay. okay. I don't know. You talk about your own arms. Mine's I was going to say, I shouldn't say arm. I feel like my core is strong and then I go and I lift something. My husband's like, aren't you? And I'm like, wait, I'm, but I'm not used to holding it in this position for that long. Yeah. I need to get back to, I knew, I need to get back go to go climbing. climbing. I got to yeah. go climbing, girl. I have to. I got to. It's, it's like I always have my list of things I need to add mm -hmm. on to, you know, because there's this beautiful palette and it's like, okay, I need to get on that treadmill and, and do some like ramp, you know, up even though the treadmill's not great, but like in the winter months. And then I'm like, oh, well, I really don't feel like it. So we all, ha we all struggle. Like, well, so don't just, don't ask me to hold that squat position in the <laughs> class. I'm like looking around, I'm like, how are people still holding this? I am literally <laughs> dying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, um, tell everyone where they can find out more about you. Um, I know you have a website, you ob obviously offer services. Do you also do virtual in addition to in-person? I am currently not doing um, any virtual sessions right now because I'm focusing my time on teaching, but mm -hmm. my head PT um, here at Core Exercise Solutions is, and she's incredible. Um, I learned so much from her as well. So um, just- So what is, I, tell, tell us what, before you go into that, <laughs> what is your daily life like? You've created this business. Are you seeing clients? Are you teaching PTs? Are you teaching, like, what, what, what are so the So I have services? a big mentorship group, and mm -hmm. I do live calls in there, mm -hmm. um, answer questioning, building programs, reading research studies, and things like that is my 
typical yeah. day right now. Yeah. And is that that mentor group that is existing PTs? No, it's a lot of anybody. trainers, yoga instructors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a really interdisciplinary person. I just feel like we should really share knowledge across disciplines. I have learned from a lot of other disciplines. I, I don't just take courses from PTs. So I feel like I'm a very open opportunity type of person and it's the human body and we should all learn about it. Yes. And so I, I teach a lot of exercise because I'm exercise based, not manual therapy, which I really feel like is a free for all for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I've, you know, at, at times a few people, you know, this always happens, will be like, this seems like, you know, you're teaching beyond the scope of other people. And I'm like, they have a body. They, if they want to, and you know, they're, they're teaching movement. Uh, why would I not give them the tools to better understand it? They don't have to be a PT. Well, and usually it's, it's PTs getting upset of like, we need to hold on to any information about like, if I'm teaching you something on how to loosen your piriformis without stretching, right, then they'll right. get upset because they want to keep it in the PD. I mean, there's enough patients to go around. Oh, totally. We don't need to hang on so tightly. We need to help everybody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that so much, Sarah. Okay. So you offer that and that, what is the website people can, this will all be in the notes, but just. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Core exercise solutions. But if you just Google my name, it'll pop up. Sarah Duval. Okay, great. And then you're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And that's. For better or worse. <laughs> yeah, I know. We All of us on there are like. Some days are, yeah. I just get so yeah. mad now at the algorithm. I had somebody comment on my video the other day where they were like, I really wish you would just talk and do more longer videos. And I'm like, well, tell that to Instagram because unless oh. you dance in front of the camera, it will not show it to a single person. It is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. For everybody out there, we are, I mean, I'm the same You're way. struggling. I'll, I'll do educational stuff. And I was always doing a minute and I was always layering and putting... And then, you know, you hear like people don't Not have, me. Yeah, I have people, like five minute video. Oh, right. <laughs> but, and then it's like feeling. nobody's watching. So it's like, yeah. So if you are somebody like who likes those longer things, then you need to watch our stuff and share it because otherwise, yeah, Instagram is going to always bias the things that are shorter and yeah. Yeah, somebody quick, was like, why transitions. don't you talk instead of pointing at stuff? And I'm like, because Instagram hates that. Yes. <laughs> This is not what I want. <laughs> right. I don't have time. Okay. You're not giving me, I know. I, I, I hate it because I feel like we're feeding into mm -hmm. the short um, attention span, but it is like, if we want to get the information out there and people to see it, then we're kind of like a little bit at the. Exactly. Yeah. So. Mercy of the algorithms. Totally. So, but anyway, yes, can, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. You're on Instagram. <laughs> okay. Well, this is lovely. Thank you so much for coming on here, Sarah. You are just a a wealth of knowledge. And I, I just loved um, hearing from you. And I know so many people will benefit because there's a lot of, again, a lot of confusion out there. But the bottom line is like, if you need a, a professional contact, somebody like Sarah, where you're going to get an individualized kind of approach, and it's not like one size fits all. And as Sarah mentioned, we're always learning too. So we're here to help. Thanks for having me. All right. Everybody, check out Sarah. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.